Good morning, everyone. Good morning to all of you who are online. Good morning um, to the worship team, all you guys serving in the booth. Um, we want to welcome you this morning. And from where I'm standing, um, the sun is breaking through in, in our auditorium. And, and I, wherever you are, it's really cold. I mean, we, I think we were in almost single degree t digit temperatures this morning. So it's, it's going to get warmer. We'll get a taste and glimpse of spring this week. So we, we really look forward to that. Hey, I, I want to begin and share um, a story about my son, Sam. We are living in Chicagoland, and I'm coming home from, from classes at seminary, and the, 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 garar, the, garar, the garage <laughs> the garage goes right into the kitchen, and um, Sam is, is, I think I'm guessing, three years old at the time, and he's standing on a chair to the right of the stove. And He's got, I don't know, maybe a stirring spoon. He's got stuff, um, food on his shirt, and his characteristic Sam grin, he shouts out, beaming with pride, Daddy, I fixed dinner. And, there's, and that's a, a decent, but on a much smaller scale, um, this earthly picture of us and God. We know who took care of the meal. We know that that was his mom. But, but, but we have a role, and God invites us to take part. He's always the lead. He's the writer, the director, the producer, the executive of it all. And throughout this book of Jonah, we see this person, this prophet, this guy Jonah, who is, is basically everywhere. He... He, he disobeys, he obeys, he runs away, he, he goes back, he pouts. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but like when the kids were like Sam's age back then, they'd, we'd always, they'd always be playing that, that, that VeggieTales movie about Jonah. And, and it, it, the, in one of the songs, it goes like this, Jonah was a prophet, but he never really got it. And if you watch him, you can spot it. He did not get the point. But in this chapter, we think he does. And I'm going to go on to say that, that in this story, um, we're maybe included in this story because Jonah is us. Maybe not so dramatic that um, we've fled God and, and got on a boat and headed to Tarshish or that we um, were swallowed up by a fish, but Jonah's nature is our nature. Jonah is a, a mixed bag of getting it right and wrong. But we know, um, as Matt continues sharing, that the story is bigger than Jonah. It's bigger than the Ninevites. Um, we know that it's about God. He's the grand designer. He writes, he weaves, he leads, and directs the courses of events. And what we see about his word, his character, as we look at Jesus, we can always discover and rediscover grace. We see the grace given to Jonah. We've seen the grace showed to, to the th sailors who throw him into the sea. And we'll soon read about, in chapter 3, the, the grace shown to the Ninevites. 
What an awesome picture Matt shared with us about grace. We can run from God's presence, but we can't outrun his pursuit. And we'll get to see this played over in chapter three, God's pursuit and God's grace. And I want that to be on display and received by me, and I want that to be on display and received by you. The working of God's spirit and that our, the eyes of our heart, that, that it would be awakened and enlightened and, and charged and recharged and overwhelmed by grace. You know, there's the reality that, that maybe some of you have never heard about this stuff before. Maybe you're, you're checking things out about God. Um, but I hope you see as we, we read in the Word, um, in the Scripture today, you'll see that there is a God that pursues you by his grace. So if you have a Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 3. We're in verse 1. It shares this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it the message that I tell you. The word came a second time. Jonah disregarded it the first time, but it came a second time. And this is a reminder for Jonah, and it's a reminder for you and me that there is this blessing, this gift, um, this opportunity and possibility of a second chance. That's the story of Jonah, and that can be the story of us, to to be given second chances and and 20 and 40 and, and on and on, second chances from God. And it brought him back to the same charge that, that, that God had given him in chapter 1. And it brings us today to our first point. What we discover about grace. We discover the God who restores. The God who restores. The God of second chances. That's a Pull out your VeggieTale DVD and go to that song. He's the God of second chances. The God of forgiveness He's saying to us, you can return. You can turn around. Just as you can't outrun God's pursuit, you can't outsend God's forgiveness. But it comes at the place, as, as Matt shared last week, of surrender. A great story or an illustration that we remember about grace in, in Luke 15 is the son who took the money from his father, his inheritance, and ran. And when he blew all his money and slept with the pigs and hitting rock bottom, he came to that place of surrender. He returned home. And who came sprinting to him? And just consider the father's restoration bring the best robe, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. What a beautiful picture of restoration and the restoration work went into motion even when Jonah headed toward Tarshish. God was just getting his attention. His his life was spared by a fish. He survived for days, and he was brought safely to shore. 
But a result of this grace in Jonah's response to follow God is, is Jonah's response to follow God where he would lead him right back at the place where, where God was telling him and where God said no, where Jonah said no to God in chapter one. Jonah obeys. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You know, it shares at the end of chapter two that, that Jonah was, was vomited out of this fish and uh, what is going on in his mind. It's, it's going to be this, this two-month journey um, to Nineveh. He's got 60 days to, to, to go back or decide or, or whatever. And, and I don't know, is, is there this form of fish PTSD uh, of being thrown off a boat and or all these things that are that are going on and I just for fun's sake I I, can, I contacted a friend on Facebook who lives in Wheeling and her sons play football um, for Wheeling Central and every year that the the Central football team makes it to the playoffs they bleach their hair. Um, it's sort of this tradition, and most of the time they, they win the state championship, and, and that's what you'd rather do to have your hair bleached for something like that than to be like living in gastric acid that, of the fish that would bleach your hair. Um, so maybe his hair is, is growing back. He's got this two-tone look to him. Um, and, but in verse 3, we know that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I know that, that, that Matt, Matt described the city in, in the first week. It, um, it is sharing here, it's taking um, Jonah three days to walk about and walk through the town with this message given to him. And I would be scared, and you would be, be scared to, to go into this violent, heathen, militaristic, terroristic nation. But Jonah is restored by God and obeying, and he gives this three-point sermon in about eight words. That's the kind of sermon that you want, right? A three-point sermon in eight words. It's, it's, it's even shorter if you read it in Hebrew, which I won't do. Um, these three points, one is a pronouncement. This is what's going to happen, a timeline. It's going to happen in 40 days, and an action. Nineveh shall be overthrown. But this message is... is much greater and weightier than the messenger Jonah. And I'm thinking here that this pronouncement is being made throughout this three-day journey. And the message and warning are, are given, and what we read in verse 5 is this collective response of thousands upon thousands responding to the work of God, to his love and to his will and his grace. And what we see 
is this, and, and, and take some time and, and examine the responses of the Ninevites, how they respond is truly amazing and unbelievable. In verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What caused them to believe? Pastor Tim Keller shares that historians have pointed out that about the time of Jonah's mission, Assyria, and, this, and Nineveh is part of this region, Assyria had experienced a series of famines and plagues and revolts and eclipses, all of which were seen as omens as far worse things to come. The answer, and the simple answer, is God. God was the one who changed hearts, who changed minds, who changed wills. And, and we read what continues in, in, verse six, in verse 6. We see a city's ultimate surrender, an ultimate surrender of belief over to belief and over to repentance. They admit they have run from God and they call on God for help. Verse 6 they, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he, rose, he arose from his throne. Another translation, I think the NLT shares that he stepped down from it. He removed his robe. He's, repla- he's taking off his royal garments and covered, and then he covered himself with sackcloth. These ripped, ripped garments of, of burlap and and, and he sat in ashes, and all of this signifying mourning and regret and this, uh, this mortality uh, from dust I came and dust we will return. And, and so the king shows this reality of, of surrender and repentance. Verse 7 goes on, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. There's this response of this violent nation, and they responded with with fasting. They responded with with mourning and, and wailing, and even to the point where they're making their flock, their, 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 their cows and their, their sheep. They're, they're, not eating, they're not eating either, and they're, they're, they're whining about it. This loud moo and bad and all, all that that's going on, that, and, and people are crying in verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let him call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Surrender. This collective surrender of and repentance and recognition that they have done as a people and as a nation. The wrongest of wrongs of sinning against each other, but ultimately sinning against God. Verse 9. Who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger 
so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And this brings us to our our second discovery, our second point about grace. We discover the God who relents. By his grace, God would not and did not destroy the Ninevites. What does it mean to relent? He held back. He withheld judgment. He withheld his justified, holy anger. The God of grace held back his wrath. Here we get an understanding of mercy, um, a helpful explanation for me and I hope for you as we understand grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. For the Ninevites, it's the second chance of life. And in this instance, they also receive mercy. And mercy, in the same family as grace, mercy is not getting what they truly deserve. And I love what Paul shares in Romans to describe the God of grace who relents. In Romans 2, verse 4, it's, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Many of us have heard it stated this way. Don't you see that it's God's kindness which is meant to lead you and me to repentance? It's not only true of the Ninevites. It's true of you and me. Lastly, by grace, we discover the God who is relentless. We go back to verses 9 and 10, and they underline that point um, that God is relentless in grace. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Fast forward on to to verse 2. Without, not, without giving too much away, God is described, Jonah describes back to God that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from, di- from disaster. God's love, God's grace is relentless. It's the God of grace who sent Jesus to give us more grace, to, to give us greater, greater understanding of how he passionately, passionately pursues his people. Of Jesus leaving the comfort of heaven, of lowering himself to be near, to incarnate himself and become human, to die on a cross where grace and mercy and justice all meet, taking upon himself the wrath of God and receiving the penalty of our sin is a reminder of relentless grace from a relentless God. I love that how Katie and the worship team has set that up for us of just this reminder of relentless love, how we've been singing how deep 
the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And we can change it and sing it right now when you hear it on the radio or wherever you're playing. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love of God. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it, but you give yourself away. Now, Nineveh is still alive and active today in some way or form, but wouldn't that be cool to see that kind of repentance and revival in our time, watching the God who restores, the the God who relents, the God who is relentless do his thing because we know that he is still willing and mighty to save. We're going to close. Um, I promise you, I, I, I just wanted to spend a, a little time talking about our own response to all of this. I guess a lot of songs are in my head, but we don't sing pretty good grace. We don't sing oh, okay grace. What we sing is amazing grace. Now, that's a terrible explanation, but that's how we might sometimes respond. And for us to respond, it's, it's, it, um, it's, it's got to be our response and our cooperation as being a spirit-led and spirit-driven and spirit-yielding kind of response. And I, I'll need to go through these quickly, but in our response to the God of grace I'm using a strange phrase here, but we stir up our affections for him. We stir up our affections for him. And this comes from just an 18th century theologian, John Edwards, and he's the one who's come up with this phrase. But it's this understanding that, that we would be moved to wonder and delight and appreciation of our senses, of this deep and abiding communion and community with Jesus, where our hearts and our attitudes are, we don't love God because we get stuff from God. We love God because he is good. As the psalm says, for us, as it tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jeremy Walker shares from his book, if we would have holy emotions genuinely stirred up a freshly accurate sense of sin, a more profound awareness of forgiveness, a deeper grasp on the love of God towards sinful men with a corresponding joy in God's grace in Christ, then we must meditate upon those central truths of God's character revealed in the being and doing of his Son, the Lord Christ, that we might anticipate that our joy will increase. So we want to stir up our affections for him. And a number two, another response is that we put on our own sackcloth and ashes. That's what Bishop wanted me to wear this morning, right, to, to put that on. But the thought there is to feel the weight of our sin, that we would mourn over it. 
And I'm not saying that we become paralyzed and we walk around beating ourselves up and feeling guilty and ashamed. I'm not, I'm not saying this, but that we would come to that place of acknowledgement. That's our, that was our intention on, on Ash Wednesday last week, but that is a place where we go and we recognize that it, it was our sin that placed Jesus on the cross. The Ninevites show us what it means to surrender and repent and turn to God. Go to um, Psalm 51 and, and, and spend time there to, to understand this rent, to, of putting on this form of sackcloth and ashes. It's a daily thing to go to the place of confession and, and admit sin and, Lord, I, I messed up. I need your help. Please forgive me. And that you would find and experience the blessing of forgiveness and lose the weight and loosen the weight of burden and oppression that we so often experience by our sin. In this um, prayer book um, put together by Puritans called the, the Valley of Vision, I, I love what it shares. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Our last response is just, is this, to step into where he calls. Sam got it right. Now, it wasn't like Amanda said, Sam, thou shalt preparest the meal. Um, but Sam was there, and he was available, and he was willing. And God is going to call you and me wherever you are. God really wants to use you. Yes, maybe he could have thought of someone else, but that too is a reminder of grace. It's a reminder of his sense of humor. Because in your lowest pain or your, your highest triumph, God will use you for his ultimate glory but our good along the way. The calling may be as great as, as heading to, to Nineveh or to Haiti or to Kenya. It also may be the calling of, of loving the person that God places in your life. The opportunity for us to join and partner, to get on board, to cooperate is available. Or to go in the opposite direction of, of God, where God wants you to go, like, like Jonah did. But Jonah gets it right the second time. And that same opportunity and grace is available for you and me. Let's pray together. Lord, you say 
in your word in, in Jonah, those who cling to, to worthless idols forfeit, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And Lord, we've done that. And Lord, we don't want to do that. So we confess that we have lost sight of you. We confess that we, we yearn and, and strive for, for, for less important things. Just like the, the monkey reaching in the bottle. God, we, we strive for things that, that don't return an ultimate joy that can be found in you. Lord, we want to discover and rediscover and be enthralled and amazed by your grace. Give us eyes to see, give us your spirits and open up our hearts to what you do and, and who you are, that we would grow in greater fellowship and love and knowledge of you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen.